Chapter twenty six of Janet's Repentance from Scenes of Clerical Life by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. Chapter twenty six. That was the last terrible crisis of temptation Janet had to pass through. The goodwill of her neighbors, the helpful sympathy of the friends who shared her religious feelings, the occupations suggested to her by Mr. Tryan, concurred with her strong spontaneous impulses towards works of love and mercy to fill up her days with quiet social intercourse and charitable exertion besides her constitution naturally healthy and strong was every week tending with the gathering force of habit to recover its equipoise and set her free from those physical solicitations which the smallest habitual vice always leaves behind it the prisoner feels where the iron has galled him long after his fetters have been loosed. There were always neighborly visits to be paid and received, and as the months wore on, increasing familiarity with Janet's present self began to efface, even from minds as rigid as Mrs. Phipps's, the unpleasant impressions that had been left by recent years. Janet was recovering the popularity which her beauty and sweetness of nature had won for her when she was a girl, and popularity, as everyone knows, is the most complex and self-multiplying of echoes. Even anti-Tryanite prejudice could not resist the fact that Janet Dempster was a changed woman, changed as the dusty, bruised, and sun-withered plant is changed when the soft rains of heaven have fallen on it, and that this change was due to Mr. Tryan's influence. The last lingering sneers against the evangelical curate began to die out, and though much of the feeling that had prompted them remained behind, there was an intimidating consciousness that the expression of such feeling would not be effective, jokes of that sort had ceased to tickle the Milby mind. Even Mr. Budd and Mr. Tomlinson, when they saw Mr. Tryan passing pale and worn along the street, had a secret sense that this man was somehow not that very natural and comprehensible thing, a humbug, that, in fact, it was impossible to explain him from the stomach-and-pocket point of view twist and stretch their theory as they might it would not fit mr tryan and so with that remarkable resemblance as to mental processes which may frequently be observed to exist between plain men and philosophers they concluded that the less they said about him the better among all janet's neighborly pleasures there was nothing she liked better than to take an early tea at the white house and to stroll with Mr. Jerome round the old-fashioned garden and orchard. There was endless matter for talk between her and the good old man, for Janet had that genuine delight in human fellowship which gives an interest to all personal details that come warm from truthful lips. And besides, they had a common interest in good-natured plans for helping their poorer neighbors. One great object of Mr. Jerome's charities was, as he often said, to keep industrious men and women off the parish. I'd rather given ten shillin' and help a man to stand on his own legs, nor pay half a crown to buy him a parish crutch. It's the ruination on him if he once goes to the parish. I've seed many a time, if you help a man we are present in a neighborly way, it sweetens his blood. 
he thinks it kind on you but the parish shillin's turn it sour he never thinks em enough in illustration of this opinion mr jerome had a large store of details about such persons as jim hardy the coal-carrier as lost his hoss and sally butts as had to sell her mangle though she was as decent a woman as need to be to the hearing of which details janet seriously inclined and you would hardly desire to see a prettier picture than the kind-faced white-haired old man telling these fragments of his simple experience as he walked with shoulders slightly bent among the moss roses and espalier apple trees while janet in her widow's cap her dark eyes bright with interest went listening by his side and little lizzie with her nankeen bonnet hanging down her back toddled on before them mrs jerome usually declined these lingering strolls and often observed i never see the like to mr jerome when he's got mrs dempster to talk to it signifies nothing to him whether we've tea at four or at five o'clock he'd go on till six if you let him alone he's like off his head however mrs jerome herself could not deny that janet was a very pretty-spoken woman she always says she never gets such pikelets as mine nowhere i know that very well other folks buy em at shops thick unwholesome things you might as well eat a sponge the sight of little lizzie often stirred in janet's mind a sense of the childlessness which had made a fatal blank in her life she had fleeting thoughts that perhaps among her husband's distant relatives there might be some children whom she could help to bring up some little girl whom she might adopt and she promised herself one day or other to hunt out a second cousin of his a married woman of whom he had lost sight for many years but at present her hands and heart were too full for her to carry out that scheme to her great disappointment her project of settling mrs pettifer at holly mount had been delayed by the discovery that some repairs were necessary in order to make the house habitable and it was not till september had set in that she had the satisfaction of seeing her old friend comfortably installed and the rooms destined for mr tryan looking pretty and cosy to her heart's content she had taken several of his chief friends into her confidence and they were warmly wishing success to her plan for inducing him to quit poor mrs wagstaff's dingy house and dubious cookery that he should consent to some such change was becoming more and more a matter of anxiety to his hearers for though no more decided symptoms were yet observable in him than increasing emaciation a dry hacking cough and an occasional shortness of breath it was felt that the fulfilment of mr pratt's prediction could not long be deferred and that this obstinate persistence in labour and self-disregard must soon be peremptorily cut short by a total failure of strength any hopes that the influence of mr tryan's father and sister would prevail on him to change his mode of life that they would perhaps come to live with him or that his sister at least might come to see him and that the arguments which had failed from other lips might be more persuasive from hers were now quite dissipated his father had lately had an attack of paralysis and could not spare his only daughter's tendance on mr tryan's return from a visit to his father 
Miss Linnet was very anxious to know whether his sister had not urged him to try change of air. From his answers she gathered that Miss Tryan wished him to give up his curacy and travel, or at least go to the South Devonshire coast. "'And why will you not do so?' Miss Linnet said. "'You might come back to us well and strong, and have many years of usefulness before you.' "'No,' he answered quietly. "'I think people attach more importance to such measures than is warranted. I don't see any good end that is to be served by going to die at Nice, instead of dying amongst one's friends and one's work. I cannot leave Milby. At least I will not leave it voluntarily.' But though he remained immovable on this point, he had been compelled to give up his afternoon service on the Sunday, and to accept Mr. Parry's offer of aid in the evening service, as well as to curtail his weekday labours. And he had even written to Mr. Prendergast to request that he would appoint another curate to the Paddyford district, on the understanding that the new curate should receive the salary but that Mr. Tryan should cooperate with him as long as he was able. The hopefulness, which is an almost constant attendant on consumption, had not the effect of deceiving him as to the nature of his malady, or of making him look forward to ultimate recovery. He believed himself to be consumptive, and he had not yet felt any desire to escape the early death which he had for some time contemplated as probable. Even diseased hopes will take their direction from the strong habitual bias of the mind, and, to Mr. Tryan, death had for years seemed nothing else than the laying down of a burden, under which he sometimes felt himself fainting. He was only sanguine about his powers of work. He flattered himself that what he was unable to do one week he should be equal to the next and he would not admit that in desisting from any part of his labour he was renouncing it permanently. He had lately delighted Mr. Jerome by accepting his long-proffered loan of the little chestnut hoss, and he found so much benefit from substituting constant riding exercise for walking that he began to think he should soon be able to resume some of the work he had dropped. That was a happy afternoon for Janet when, after exerting herself busily for a week with her mother and Mrs. Pettifer, she saw Holly Mount looking orderly and comfortable from attic to cellar. It was an old red-brick house with two gables in front and two clipped holly trees flanking the garden gate, a simple, homely-looking place that quiet people might easily get fond of, and now it was scoured and polished and carpeted and furnished so as to look really snug within. When there was nothing more to be done, Janet delighted herself with contemplating Mr. Tryan's study, first sitting down in the easy chair, and then lying for a moment on the sofa, that she might have a keener sense of the repose he would get from those well-stuffed articles of furniture which she had gone to Rotherby on purpose to choose. Now, mother, she said, when she had finished her survey, you have done your work as well as any fairy mother or godmother that ever turned a pumpkin into a coach and horses. You stay and have tea cosily with Mrs. Pettifer while I go to Mrs. Linnet's. I want to tell Mary and Rebecca the good news that I've got the excise man to promise that he will take Mrs. Wagstaff's lodgings when Mr. Tryan leaves. 
they'll be so pleased to hear it because they thought he would make her poverty an objection to his leaving her but my dear child said mrs raynor whose face always calm was now a happy one have a cup of tea with us first you'll perhaps miss mrs linnet's tea-time no i feel too excited to take tea yet i'm like a child with a new baby house walking in the air will do me good so she set out holly mount was about a mile from that outskirt of paddiford common where mrs linnet's house stood nestled among its laburnums lilacs and syringas janet's way thither lay for a little while along the high road and then led her into a deep rutted lane which wound through a flat track of meadow and pasture while in front lay smoky paddiford and away to the left the mother town of milby there was no line of silvery willows marking the course of a stream no group of scotch firs with their trunks reddening in the level sunbeams nothing to break the flowerless monotony of grass and hedgerow but an occasional oak or elm and a few cows sprinkled here and there a very commonplace scene indeed but what scene was ever commonplace in the descending sunlight when colour has awakened from its noonday sleep and the long shadows awe us like a disclosed presence above all what scene is commonplace to the eye that is filled with serene gladness and brightens all things with its own joy and janet just now was very happy as she walked along the rough lane with a buoyant step a half-smile of innocent kindly triumph played about her mouth she was delighting beforehand in the anticipated success of her persuasive power and for the time her painful anxiety about mr tryan's health was thrown into abeyance but she had not gone far along the lane before she heard the sound of a horse advancing at a walking pace behind her without looking back she turned aside to make way for it between the ruts and did not notice that for a moment it had stopped and had then come on with a slightly quickened pace in less than a minute she heard a well-known voice say mrs dempster and turning saw mr tryan close to her holding his horse by the bridle it seemed very natural to her that he should be there her mind was so full of his presence at that moment that the actual sight of him was only like a more vivid thought and she behaved as we are apt to do when feeling obliges us to be genuine with a total forgetfulness of polite forms she only looked at him with a slight deepening of the smile that was already on her face he said gently take my arm and they walked on a little way in silence it was he who broke it you are going to paddiford i suppose the question recalled Janet to the consciousness that this was an unexpected opportunity for beginning her work of persuasion, and that she was stupidly neglecting it. "'Yes,' she said. "'I was going to Mrs. Linnet's. I knew Miss Linnet would like to hear that our friend Mrs. Pettifer is quite settled now in her new house. She is as fond of Mrs. Pettifer as I am, almost. I won't admit that anyone loves her quite as well, for no one else has such good reason as I have.' but now the dear woman wants a lodger for you know she can't afford to live in so large a house by herself but i knew when i persuaded her to go there that she would be sure to get one 
She's such a comfortable creature to live with, and I didn't like her to spend all the rest of her days up that dull passage, being at everyone's beck and call who wanted to make use of her. Yes, said Mr. Tryan, I quite understand your feeling. I don't wonder at your strong regard for her. Well, but now I want her other friends to second me. There she is, with three rooms to let, ready furnished, everything in order, and I know someone who thinks as well of her as I do, and who would be doing good all round to every one that knows him as well as to Mrs. Pettifer, if he would go to live with her. He would leave some uncomfortable lodgings, which another person is already coveting and would take immediately, and he would go to breathe pure air at Holly Mount, and gladden Mrs. Pettifer's heart by letting her wait on him, and comfort all his friends who are quite miserable about him. Mr. Tryan saw it all in a moment. He saw that it had all been done for his sake. He could not be sorry. He could not say no. He could not resist the sense that life had a new sweetness for him, and that he should like it to be prolonged a little, only a little, for the sake of feeling a stronger security about Janet. When she had finished speaking she looked at him with a doubtful, inquiring glance. He was not looking at her. His eyes were cast downwards. But the expression of his face encouraged her, and she said, in a half-playful tone of entreaty, "'You will go and live with her. I know you will. You will come back with me now and see the house.' He looked at her then and smiled. There is an unspeakable blending of sadness and sweetness in the smile of a face sharpened and paled by slow consumption. That smile of Mr. Tryan's pierced poor Janet's heart. She felt in it at once the assurance of grateful affection and the prophecy of coming death. Her tears rose. They turned round without speaking and went back again along the lane. End of chapter 26 of Janet's Repentance